the truth is, to bring people home safely and quickly, you're going to have to make deals until you have the deterrence. Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. WNBA star Brittany Griner spent 10 months in a Russian prison last year before she was released to the United States in a prisoner swap for arms dealer Victor Boot. Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gerskovich is in a Russian prison now, and U.S. officials are negotiating for his release. These two cases are part of a growing phenomenon of hostile governments and groups imprisoning Americans, often on trumped-up charges, and seeking payoffs for their freedom. This week, I speak with Jason Rezaian, himself a former hostage in Iran, to explore the rise of hostage-taking and what the United States could do differently both to respond when an American is detained and to deter wrongful detention altogether. Then I continue the conversation with Natasha Hall and Danny Sharp, discussing the case of Princeton University graduate student Liz Cherkov. Liz, who's appeared on Babel and with whom we've remained in contact through the years, was kidnapped in March in Iraq by groups close to the Iranian government. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Jason Rezaian is a columnist for The Washington Post. He was held hostage in Iran for 544 days, and he's a partner with me in a CSS commission on hostage-taking and wrongful detention. Jason, welcome back to Babel. It's good to be back. Why do governments take hostages? The short answer is because they can't. Unfortunately, although the taking of hostages has been prohibited by various conventions that most countries are signers on, including Iran, they still do it. And they do it by using their supposed independent judiciaries as a a front for taking hostages and then using them in bilateral context to try and extract concessions from the governments of the citizens that they're holding. And I think that the real problem is that there isn't enough being done in the international context to make it harder or more expensive for governments to do this, which is why you and I sort of thought that this is a a subject that is worth exploring. Because while Western governments, United States and our allies are quick to condemn the use of hostage taking or wrongful detention as a foreign policy tool, they don't have a lot of ideas about how to remedy the situation. Well, this has been going on for years. The Barbary pirates would hold Americans hostage as soon as the Americans were protected by the British Empire, then went to the U.S. government, imprisoned ships, and demanded payments to protect American shipping. And I think even going back to that time, the public narrative was, well, we don't pay for our prisoners. But we paid tribute. We paid. Ultimately, we always pay. We say we're not going to. And in the end, when it becomes too politically costly not to bring people home, we end up paying. My hope is that we can come up with some ideas about how to cut that off at the pass and say, hey, look, don't do this because it's going to cost you more than you're going to get. Before we get into some of the solutions, I want to talk a little bit more about the problems. How has this hostage-taking practice been changing over the last 
30 or 40 years. I certainly remember when I was working on Capitol Hill in the late 1980s, there were a number of hostages being held in Lebanon. And the Reagan administration was negotiating for their freedom. It's part of what got the Reagan administration into the Iran-Contra scandal. I think that the biggest shift from the 80s and 90s, and even in the last decade or so to now, is that we see governments doing it more openly than they were before. In the Lebanon context, it was often a proxy group for Iran doing this. Now Iran is just doing it themselves when a foreign national enters their country. And it used to be an America problem. Now it's a problem that affects really all of our European allies, the UK, Canada. And so it's governments really weaponizing their law enforcement, judiciary, and diplomatic resources against the individuals of countries that they have issues with. And it's sort of an easy and cheap way to put a wedge in relations and get something out of another country. How common is this? It's not incredibly common, but it's much more common than it was a decade ago. In the public cases that we know of here, Americans being held by states, the rise in the last eight or so years is more than 500%. And we're talking dozens of people. We're talking dozens of people. There's anywhere between 45 and 60 being held right now that we know of. And I give that range because the State Department and the U.S. government have different ideas about who is wrongfully detained. What does that mean, wrongfully detained, in your mind? To me, it means that a U.S. citizen is being used as leverage against America by a foreign state, which is essentially what hostage-taking is. But the reason that we haven't called it hostage-taking when it comes to states is because there's this idea that there is a toolkit of diplomatic resources that you can use when you're dealing with a government rather than a terrorist or a criminal organization. The thinking is, if you come out and call them a hostage, you're going to upset that foreign government. Well, I say, you know what? They're trying to upset you by taking (laughs) your citizen hostage. So let's just kind of cut to the chase, call a spade a spade, and get to the root of the problem. Journalists seem especially targeted. Why do you think that is? I think it's for two reasons. One, there is an audacity factor that these governments want to have a high public impact. So in my case, when I was taken in in 2014, there were several other Americans being held in Iran. One was a former Marine, one was a Christian pastor. There would be intermittent stories about their ordeals but not to the extent that there was about me, because my colleagues in the media sounded a massive alarm. That's one reason. But I think another kind of bonus effect for these governments is it has a chilling effect on journalism generally. And if you look at Iran, there's almost no foreign media presence there at this point. If you look at China and Russia, two of the other countries that are most egregious in their use of hostage-taking. No American presence in those countries. Evan Grishkovich might have been the last U.S. citizen working on the ground in Russia. So I think it's a double win at the moment, and all the more reason for us to figure out how to make it a little less attractive. And you said that ultimately the U.S. government for hundreds of years has paid off the hostage-takers. It's just what we do. Has that changed? I don't think it's changed at all. But what I would say is, do you want to be a citizen of a country 
that isn't going to go to great lengths to save you when you're in trouble? I would argue no. And I think you and I both grew up in eras when you watched a film and the protagonist or the damsel in distress said, you can't do that to me. I'm an American. That meant something. And you thought to yourself, yeah, that's probably right. If I go somewhere, they're not going to mess with me because they don't want the ire of the U.S. government. Now, that's kind of a hokey idea that doesn't seem to match up with the reality. We have targets on our back. And as journalists, we have a second target on our back. When you talk about when we were growing up and there was a sense of you can't touch me, I'm an American, what was the U.S. government doing then that doesn't do now? Unfortunately, I think a big part of it is walking the walk as we talk the talk, right? The rule of law, due process, all of these things that have been sort of fundamental to our democracy, parts of which were suspended during the war on terror following 9-11, our treatment of certain individuals who were accused of potential terrorist activity. Of course, there were some who were clearly involved in that activity and others who weren't. Some of them are still languishing in Guantanamo Bay. And I can tell you from my own experience, the Iranian security forces who captured me used that as an example. Hey, look, we're accusing you of espionage. We're accusing you of crimes against our national security. We're just doing to you what your government did to our people, right? And while I don't think that's a really valid argument. Ultimately, it does chip away at our respectability and and legitimacy when it comes to talking about these issues. So I think the idea that we stand for something different is wonderful in theory, but when people didn't get fair trials and were not given the opportunity to defend themselves, other countries just said to themselves, okay, now we can get away with this. You know, we can do it too. And again, there isn't anything standing in their way, right? I think we've done a better job in the last few years of managing how we approach foreign actors who we arrest, whether they're Iranian or Russian. But the situation is, has seismically shifted in the last couple of decades. What tools do you think the U.S. government needs to develop that it doesn't currently have? I think it's, first and foremost, more coordination within the U.S. government and the various agencies, right? The National Security Council, State Department, the FBI, CIA, other law enforcement offices, Congress, everybody wants to solve this problem. Everybody has a different idea of how to do it. And oftentimes those ideas are not only at odds with one another, but they directly attack one another. The approach that is being cultivated right now following the policy review that was done during the Obama administration and then the passing of the Levinson Act in 2020, I think we're getting there, but it's still very much a work in progress. The other thing is there is no one-size-fits-all set of deterrence policies from one country to the next. You can't just say, okay, Iran is wrongfully detaining this businessman and Russia is wrongfully detaining this journalist and China is wrongfully detaining this diplomat. The answers to each one of these questions is the same. You have to look at the context. You have to look at the relationship between the two countries. You have to look at the motivation, right? And sometimes I don't think we have a great understanding of the motivation early on in these cases. And my own personal theory And what I hope that we are able to unpack with this commission is that the deterrences are baked into the motivation. Whatever the motivation a country has for doing this, the deterrence should help undercut that motivation. And I think that while I don't have the final answer yet, 
I think we're going to come up with it. And one of the paradoxes is the more you talk about caring about freeing hostages, the higher you make the price because your adversary sees your focus, sees your intention, and feels that the more focus there is, the greater the upside is that rewards will follow. Well, I think that there is that legitimate concern. I look at this as a two-track problem. The immediate one of how do we bring citizens home as quickly and safely as possible? Because you're really making a choice between leaving somebody behind or bringing them home. It's that simple. The truth is, to bring people home safely and quickly, you're going to have to make deals until you have the deterrence. Without the deterrence, there's a very binary situation. Bring them home by giving the captors something that they want or leave them behind. It's black and white. But if you have this second track of developing a long-term set of tools that will necessarily evolve and adjust over time, then you're in business. But at this point, I just don't think that you know you can shut the door and say, okay, we're not going to do any deals at all, because that's really making a decision to just throw people under the bus. Let me ask a hard question, which is that in some cases, making the deal means you also have to be willing to walk away. And in your case, with you and your wife, the United States almost walked away when it looked like the Iranians weren't going to uphold the deal. How do you think about that prospect of, on the one hand, you want to get everybody home quickly and safely, but on the other hand, you're working with adversarial countries who are trying to extract the most they possibly can and will be willing to break deals? Well, this is where I have to sometimes consider recusing myself from the conversation, right? People ask me all the time, well, is the cost of bringing this person from this country home too high? Which is a hard question. Because all of us who've been former hostages, and I've had this conversation with other former hostages, while personally, we might think to ourselves, well, the cost of that is just too high. But what kind of hypocrite would I be who, having been released in a negotiated deal, is going to say, don't do a deal, right? It's an impossible calculation that we assume that a president or another leader of a country can make easily, and it's not. And this is a very challenging set of ordeals to come to terms with. And we've seen this in the Brittany Griner case and others, the Trevor Reed case. The narrative that follows the release is really important. In my case as well, there was pallets of cash. I mean, you look up pallets of cash in the dictionary, and there's my ugly mug <laughs> right next to the definition. And if you go back and kind of unravel what happened in the implementation of the JCPOA or any of these cases, if you just pinpoint the release of hostages and whatever the financial piece of the puzzle was, yeah, it looks like a really bad deal. But there were so many other things involved. There was freedom of Americans. There was the limitation of Iran's nuclear program, which was working until the last president decided to pull us out of it. There were new sanctions put on Iran's ballistic missiles the same day that I was released. Yes, you isolate hostages and cash, looks really bad. But, you know, I'm a sports fan and you talk about these multi-team, multiplayer deals. It's only the two most high-profile people that you ever really talk about. But there's always more pieces of the puzzle to consider. As you think broadly over this problem and taking your own case out of it, what do you think were the most successful U.S. effort 
to get hostages home. I mean, well, the U.S. has been working at this for a long time. It's often criticized. Can you remember a time when if the U.S. is really successful or perceived to be really successful doing this? Or is it always going to be messy and criticized? I think it's always going to be messy and criticized. I think some of the most successful cases are probably ones that we've never heard about before, right? Because they were able to get to the, the heart of the problem quickly. One that was tangentially related to my own case was the instance of the American sailors that wandered into Iranian waters four or five days before I was released. I can tell you from where I was sitting in a prison, hearing about these Americans being captured by the IRGC, the same people that held me, and then seeing that 12 hours later, they were released and nobody was hurt and not a single shot was fired and that it was done through telephone calls between Iran's foreign minister and secretary of state. That tells me that there is a different way than these kind of protracted, long-term prison, court of public opinion dramas like the one I endured. Jason Rezaian, I am looking forward to working with you on the CSS Commission on Hostage Taking and Wrongful Detention. And thank you for joining us once again on Babel. It's an honor to be here. Thank you, John. We launched the CSIS Commission on Hostage Taking and Wrongful Detention back in March of this year. But the trigger for bringing Jason on today was the news breaking about Liz Cherkov's detention. Besides knowing her personally, what makes Liz's case different from those we normally think about on the commission? Well, first, she's not an American citizen, but she has American ties. She was a PhD student at Princeton. She is a Russian-Israeli dual national which in the context of Iraq, which doesn't have relations with Israel, Iran, which has hostile view of Israel. She was taken by an Iranian-aligned group in Iraq. It's not clear to me what country she's in right now. It's not clear to me what either these Iraqi groups or their Iranian sponsors might want in exchange. We're really f focused on the phenomenon of countries that are trying to extract things from the United States. But the U.S. role in this is not direct. The structures the U.S. has are not set up to deal with cases like this. And the Israel element makes it especially tricky because of Israel's essentially passive hostility with Iraq and active hostility with Iran, which is sponsoring the group that took her. But I think Liz's case opens up a Pandora's box of where this could potentially be going and all of the possible issues. It was a proxy militia, so Kataib Hezbollah, so an IRGC-backed group that is in Iraq. And one can imagine a situation where it's not just Iran, but it's groups like Wagner and other state-aligned militias or mercenary groups taking Americans or American-adjacent people anywhere in the world. We have a lot, an increasing number of failed states and failing states in Sudan and elsewhere. Where we have a lot of humanitarian workers, a lot of journalists of various nationalities, many of them connected to the United States in some way, researchers just like us. I mean, this is very close to home, right? And at the end of the day, I think what Jason's point about journalists being a target, because it creates a chilling effect on what we can extract from these countries, just in terms of free media and understanding and knowledge, is really under threat here. And 
I think it opens a door in other places too that we've seen in recent weeks, like employees from the Minsk Group, which is a U.S. organization being held captive in China. They're Chinese citizens, but they're employed by a U.S. organization. So what was the organization's role protecting these people who are Chinese citizens? Even more close to home, I used to work for the White Helmets, and a big question was, we know the Syrian regime might be taking over certain areas. We know that white helmets might be, if they're taken and captured by the Syrian regime, they will be brutally tortured. And so what is our role, even though they're Syrian citizens, for us to help them get out of the country, right? And so there was you know, a great deal of diplomatic wrangling to get many of them out when there was a Syrian regime offensive. And we didn't get all of them out. And I think this points to sort of the expansion of this problem, that it's not just about necessarily U.S. citizens and telling U.S. citizens, don't go to Syria, don't go to Russia, don't go to China, you know, sort of the usual suspects where many of these state hostages are held. But it really opens up the door to so much more than that. And I think it goes back to what Jason said, you know, where they do it because they can. We're just sitting ducks, to be honest. You know, and from a government perspective, this is one of those, by definition, low probability, high impact events. Liz Cherkoff is somebody who has been in lots of dangerous places. She felt like she was among friends and protected. And more than 99 days out of 100, she was. And how any of us can get a real sense of how you calibrate when there is danger, what danger looks like. Things suddenly go very, very bad and they're life altering. But she was in a world where she felt protected. She felt safe. She felt like she had allies. She felt like she had people looking out for her. And for those of us as researchers who go to some of these places and feel similarly that we're in a bubble, that people are protecting us, as Natasha says, it can be daunting because you can't really calculate these low probability, high risk events with any kind of accuracy when the consequences are so profound. I want to drill in on something Natasha alluded to. Beyond a commercial affiliation, working for a company, there's also a question of values and what values people represent. Are there ways that the U.S. government has in the past is able to now, or at the very least should be, advocating for foreign hostages? I think it makes the situation hard. Again, I think that this opens the door to a whole range of scenarios. I think that we haven't really cracked the case even on U.S. citizens, so it makes it difficult when we start expanding it to citizens of other countries. That said, this administration has been able to release some political prisoners from Egypt, for example probably by their own admission, not enough, given the tens of thousands that are held there. But it's not a catch-all type of solution, unfortunately. And that makes it very difficult for us, right? Because there's so many emerging crises and issues every day that dealing with a single individual in any one of those countries, you hate to say it because there are families waiting for those people to be released day after day. But it makes it difficult to make this a priority every single day for the U.S. government. And so I think that there's been a lot of advances with this, and we've talked about them with the Hostage Commission, but there's still much to be done. But there's obviously a coloration. The fact that Jamal Khashoggi is still an issue in the United States. Jamal was not an American citizen, 
Arguably, Jamal did not enjoy consular protection from the United States. But when he was murdered by Saudi government agents in the Istanbul consulate of Saudi Arabia, the United States government felt that this was a legitimate issue. Maybe the Trump administration was not as seized with it, but the Biden administration has been seized with it. Congress has been seized with it. I was just in Saudi Arabia last week. There's a fatigue with hearing about it. But I think the reality is when people with deep U.S. connections are involved in or implicated or engaged, there still is, if not a de jure responsibility, de jure response, there's an element of emotional connection, of a sense of responsibility. It's different. And for people in the U.S. government, I think it becomes a gray area. But it's hard to say it's not relevant. And the question, as Natasha suggests, is, okay, so what are the practical outcomes of that? If it's not something that that fits into our toolkit that we're working on developing tools for, but it's an even murkier area. How does the U.S. play a constructive role? How does it work with partners and allies? How does it do other kinds of things? Because clearly, there's a sense of connection in Congress, among the American public, even for people who aren't citizens who don't carry that blue passport. Yeah, I think it's a really emotional issue. And that's the thing for a government, a huge bureaucracy dealing with protecting tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of lives, both here and abroad. It's tough for them to prioritize that, I think. When you see Emma Cherkov, Liz's sister, on TV pleading for the release of her sister, it's emotional. It strikes a chord in a way that all of the human rights violations and human rights watch reports for Saudi Arabia just doesn't accomplish, right? We know what happened to Jamal Khashoggi. We know who he is. We've heard from his wife. I think it's a different level of connection that insists on a solution from the U.S. government, right? And so I don't think we're there yet, but I suspect that the U.S. government is going to need to start coming up with some real solutions to this. I know all of us in the Middle East program are hoping for Liz's immediate release and return home. But in the meantime, John and Natasha, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Danny. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.